In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Um, instead of starting a new book, um, we're going to just have a small, uh, a small separate topic today about um, the topic of money. And specifically in the book of Proverbs, um, it speaks a lot about money, finances, how to deal wisely with, with wealth and money. Um, we're going to speak about that. God willing, um, we are going to start uh, a new book after the Feast of the Nativity. Um, most likely we won't have Bible study next week because I'll be out of town. And then the week after that, on Thursday night, will be the Feast of the Nativity. So we also won't have Bible um, And so the first one that we will be starting a new book will be the week after um, the Nativity, um, God willing. So today we're going to have just this topic um, also based on the, the books of the Bible, specifically the book of Proverbs, but just focusing on um, uh, money and what we can learn about having wealth um, with regards to uh, money. So there's nine points that I want to mention. Um, the first one, when it, you know, if you look at the themes of the book of Proverbs, um, the first one we can say is about working, uh, not being lazy. Um, the second one is don't overwork. The third one has to do with debt and avoiding debt. Uh, the fourth has to do with being honest in our work um, and in earning our wages. Um, the fifth is having wisdom in the way that we spend our money. The sixth is regarding giving of what we earn to the poor. Um, the seventh is speaking about the relationship between righteousness and money and saying that righteousness is more important than money. Uh, eighth is contentment with the, the wealth, the possessions, the finances that I have. And then the ninth is actually what are some of the benefits of poverty, which maybe we don't think about that too much. Um, we always think that getting out of poverty is, of course, the what we want. Um, but the Bible actually speaks about some some things that people who um, find themselves in that place of of being poor or maybe not necessarily being very poor, but at least not having more that we would want to have. What are some of the benefits um, of that? So the first is work and don't be lazy. There are some little stories here um, that I found that can kind of like help illustrate the point. So the story here says what a new employee had been caught coming in late for work three times and the fourth morning, the foreman decided to confront him. Look here, he snapped. Don't you know what time we start work around here? No, sir, said the man. They're always working when I get here. Right. So this man who is used to always coming to work kind of after everybody else, um, and for him, this is, <laughs> this is fine. Um, we read actually about this idea um, in the book of Proverbs when, um, we know, so we know King Solomon is the one who wrote the book of Proverbs, um, and he, he gives the example of seeing how uh, the ants are working. And anyone who's seen ants knows that they are diligent, working all the time. Um, they, they never rest. Like you, you, you rarely ever see an ant not moving. It's always, well, it's unless it's dead. Um, but if it's alive, <laughs> it's always moving. So he says, what? Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you slumber, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So shall your poverty come on you like a prowler and your need like an armed man. So he's saying the ant, it doesn't have, like it's very self-motivated. Like it doesn't have a supervisor. It doesn't have someone who is like over it that is telling it 
what to do, what time to wake up, what you know, how to spend its time. It's constantly thinking about its self-preservation, right? It's always thinking about what it needs to do. So the idea that we work, and this work, you could apply it to working for, for money to make a living, or you could apply it to spiritual work, like the idea that we have to be active and alive in, in, in whether it be our physical work or our spiritual work so that we are able to maintain ourselves, right? The idea of work is something that is very um, honored in the scripture, um, which is why the idea of, you know, all we want is to retire early and to have money and to spend the rest of our lives just having fun, like even though that sounds nice, um, but if you read in the scripture, this is not an ideal that we should be working toward, right? The the ideal that's always like mentioned in the scripture is that working is actually good for us. It's good to work, right? Not just again for um, the physical needs, but also the spiritual needs. In Proverbs 10, um, it says, "He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a wise son." He who sleeps in harvest is a son who causes shame. So the idea also of like planning, right? So um, the person who I is gathering in the summer, why are they gathering? They're gathering because in the winter, there's not going to be enough food in order for them to, to have. So they prepare themselves. They gather in the summer. So while maybe in the summer, they could be spending that time just enjoying themselves, but they're thinking ahead and saying, no, in the winter time, there's going to be a lack of food, so I have to prepare so that when that day comes, I will be ready and I will be able to survive. So also, again, both physically and spiritually, we can think about in our lives, like, how is it that we should be planning for the future? Like, what does it mean for us to plan? What are we looking forward to in the future? Um, what are the obstacles we might face? Um, and to prepare for that from now. Also, it says in, in chapter 12, the hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor, right? The one who is the diligent, the one who is the one who is like always responsible, always doing the work on time, being proactive. This is the one actually who's going to be promoted to be like a ruler. He's going to be the one who is the boss. He's going to be the one who is the manager, right? Because he is he doesn't need anyone over him to be telling him always what to do. He is very self-motivated and always doing the right thing. But the lazy man, he is the one who's going to be put to forced labor because there is no other way for to get the lazy man to do work other than to force him against his will to do work. And if he doesn't do any work, then, of course, he is going to perish. Mm -hmm. Proverbs 26, it says, The lazy man says, There is a lion in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed. The lazy man buries his hand in the bowl. It wearies him to bring it back to his mouth. The lazy man is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. I really like the, the, this, these verses. It's very interesting. So when it says what the lazy man says, there is a lion in, er, in the road. A fierce lion is in the streets. What does that mean? He's creating obstacles. He's making excuses. He's like, you know, I, I can't go out today because there's a lion in the road, right? And that lion could represent anything that we make up as being a reason why we don't want to do our work, we don't want to be responsible, because there's a lion in the road, right? Like, it's very easy for us to find reasons not to do something and to justify it to ourselves and to justify it to other people. Um, you know what? I'm just I'm not feeling very good today. 
um, you know, I can't go to work or I can't do this. Or, you know, I know I promised you that today I was going to do this, but, you know, there's this other situation. It's very easy to get out of doing things, right, um, by saying that there's a good reason, this line on the road that's preventing, okay? Second part is, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the lazy man on his bed, like just like a door, like like back and forth on the bed, right? Um, the lazy man buries his hand in the bowl, so he's like eating, okay? And as his hand is in the bowl, he's so lazy that he can't even bring his hand back up to his mouth, kind of like he falls asleep even while he's eating because he doesn't he doesn't even have the energy or the strength to feed himself, okay? And this same man, this same lazy man, in his own eyes, is wiser than seven men who can answer sensibly. Like, that is the way he sees himself. The lazy man sees himself as being wise by being lazy. Like, being lazy is actually a virtue for him. The more that I can get out of work, the more that I can, like, just indulge myself and not have to do any work, the more I can make excuses and, and, and not be required to do things, then this is, for me, a victory. Right. This is for me like a virtue. I am the wise because I'm able to get out. But he doesn't realize that he is hurting himself. Like the person who who lives in this way. Of course, these are metaphors, but the person who is living this way is har is harming himself. He will be the last person who will be chosen to be um, for promotion, for instance, if he wants to advance in his career. He will not be a successful person. He will not be a reliable person. People are not going to go to this person and ask him for favors because he doesn't keep his promises, right? Because he says, I will do something, but in the end, he, he makes excuses why he doesn't do it, right? And he himself is harming himself because he is not benefiting from the work, right? Like, as much as maybe we don't like work, but we benefit from work. We learn from work. We gain experience from work. We, we use up our time in doing something productive and useful as opposed to just being idle and falling into all kinds of trouble because we don't know how to use our time. A person who is, uh, person who is, is working diligently is someone who is benefiting from that work as opposed to making these excuses. Also in, cha in chapter 13, it says, The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing, but the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Right? The lazy man, maybe he's a dreamer, right? He dreams. He says, you know, it would be great for me to own a yacht and to cruise and to do this and that and like all these dreams that he wishes that he could experience, he could have, right? He desires. But when he looks around, he has none of those things. Like he, he doesn't have any of the things that he desires to have. Why? Because he's a lazy man. He's not willing to work to get anything, right? The soul of the diligent shall be made rich. Why? Because he's diligent, right? Someone who works. And this applies also to the spiritual life. Like a person who prays once a month and goes to liturgy once a month and doesn't read and doesn't do anything, like that person is not going to benefit spiritually and is not going to grow. So, so they might desire, you know, like they might see like the stories of the saints and these things be like, oh, wow, that's great. Like I, I, I want to be like that. But they're not anywhere near that. And they will never be like that. Because they are not making any effort to grow, right? They're not making any effort to improve themselves. But the soul of the diligent, the one who is meticulous, the one who is diligent, the one who is um, responsible, the one who is consistent, that is the one who will be made rich, whether it be with the physical riches um, or the spiritual riches. So what are some lessons we learned about this point, working and do not be lazy? One is we should work honestly without the need for constant supervision, right? Even if our boss is on vacation, doesn't give us 
Um, it doesn't give us a reason to slack. Second is diligent work prevents poverty and failure, right? So we ask, did I do my part, right? Did, I, did we do what it is that we should be do for, st for studying, for working, for preparing for something or not? Are we planning for the future? Um, third, do we make excuses for our laziness? Whenever I just don't want to do something, I say there's a lion on the road. There's something that's preventing me, and I place all of the, the reasons why I am not successful on something else. I blame something else, whether a person or, or some situation, experience something from my past. Whatever it is, I'm always saying there's a lion in the road. Yeah. Well, what can be seen as lazy in another area? Definitely, right? Like, actually, sometimes people who are the most diligent in one area do it to the detriment of other things, right? Like, you could have a person who's, like, super, super focused in career, right? Like, that's the thing they care about the most. And they'll work extra long hours, and they'll, you know, be a model employee in so many things, working from home, doing everything, right? But when, it, when you look at, like, all the other areas of their life, you know, how much time do you spend with your family? Well, I'm always busy working. Well, how much time do you spend praying? Well, I'm very busy. How much time do you do this and this? Very busy, right? So they, they, they it's, un, it's unbalanced, right? So you can definitely have a person who is diligent in one area, but not, not across the board. And that can be a big problem as well, right? But just as that person knows how to be diligent in one area, they can, they know the skills. Like they know what they need to do but just maybe they are unmotivated to apply those same skills to the other areas, and that's what they need to do. Like, for instance, when it comes to the spiritual life, to convince ourselves that the spiritual life is even more important than fear and those things, right? So in whatever way that I, I know how to attain success in one area, I apply that in every area. Yeah. And then the last point is, do we feel clever in avoiding work? You know, like I'll, I'll let somebody else do it. I'll make excuses. Um, and I feel like work is just a bad thing. Like I don't want to do it. I just want to rest. I want to relax. I want to have fun. And anything that requires something of me or responsibility placed on me, it's something I just want to avoid, right? So we spoke about all these topics, okay? Uh, St. Habib Gerges, he said uh, about this topic, he said, avoid idleness and flee from laziness. For laziness is a laboratory for the devil. Make every effort and be hardworking. So when your enemy attacks you, he will find you busy away from him, not finding room for him in your heart. Being idle is fatal venom. It is the moth of virtue and the mother of all heresies and evil fantasies. It is the virus of all evil and sin, which brings temptations and causes the vile thoughts. Laziness eliminates the strength of the soul and causes restlessness and rejection from the spiritual deeds, and it weakens the fervent worship, which results usually from putting off the fervents of the spirit and the earthly deeds and forgetfulness of the beneficence of heaven. Be alert and prevent all what causes restlessness and idleness in your soul, lest it weakens your strength and departs from worship. Right? How the idea of being lazy spiritually, it like short circuits the spiritual growth that we are having. You know, like when we when we are on a, a path of spiritual growth 
and then we are tempted by idleness and laziness, and we are led astray from this path of consistent spiritual growth, it undoes the progress that we've made and derails us from continuing to move forward to keeping our focus on heaven and so on. So again, the Bible makes it very clear that being diligent is something that is good. Being, being uh, working, uh, being alert, uh, being, like, being responsible, like not desiring the lazy life as the goal. I think that's the thing. Is we, we as a society, to a large extent, have targeted laziness as a goal. Because if I can afford to be lazy because I have enough money and I don't have all the responsibilities, then laziness is like a target. Because if I can if I can attain a life of laziness, a life where I don't have to wake up early, a life where I don't have to work, a life where I don't have no s boss over me telling me do this, do this, do this, then then to me I can just spend my life having fun, right? And I'm not saying that recreation is bad. I'm just saying that that shouldn't be my goal. My goal should not just be I want to live a life of recreation. I want to live a life where I have no responsibilities. I want to live a life where I can be lazy with no consequence because I have enough money saved right work is necessary for our salvation right i mean even in uh, the garden of eden when god was uh, punishing them ejecting them from the garden and he told adam um, you know as part of the curse it's like you must work the land right you must work right in order for you to survive you must work and that again work is not just physical work but it's also the spiritual work. You must work in order to live. You must work in order to succeed. The second point is about not overworking. Okay, so there's the story. It says, A rich industrialist was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. Because I've caught enough fish for today, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch more fish than you need? The rich man asked, "Why would I? what would I do with them? You could earn more money, came the impatient reply, and buy a better boat so you could go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish, and make more money. Soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? You could sit down and enjoy life, said the industrialist. What do you think I'm doing now? The fisherman replied as he looked placidly out to sea. So, again, the idea, I really like these little stories. Um, you know, it's like this, this man is saying, in order for you to enjoy your life, you have to be very rich. But in order to be very rich, you have to work so much. But as you are working so much, you are not living your life. You are focusing only on one thing, which is gaining wealth. Proverbs 23. It says, do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. So even things like riches that we might work very hard to gain, in a moment we might lose it. You know, like we don't necessarily, I, I remember um, there was a, when the, the housing crisis happened, like around 2008 or something like that or 2000, yeah, 2008, and a lot of people lost a lot of money in the stock market, and people who were very, very wealthy, they lost all of their wealth, and people who had saved money for, you know, retirement um, 
uh, they lost so much of it, right? So just because we have wealth, right, it doesn't mean that it's going to stay forever. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if something's going to happen that requires me to spend a lot of my money, something unexpected um, that just kind of happened, came about that I didn't, I wasn't expecting, I didn't know was going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. So he's saying if you make your goal to be wealthy and you overwork, meaning you're working all the time, like we were talking about being having an unbalanced life, not focusing on everything equally, then who says that all this money that you're going to make is actually going to benefit you? You know, many, many people work their entire life to be very wealthy and then they die. Like, what was the benefit to you for all of that work that you did? If you neglected all of these other things that were very important that you didn't pay any attention to in your life and you focus so much on just being wealthy, right? Um, will you set your eyes on that which is not? Like, are you focusing and targeting something that kind of <laughs> is, is irrelevant or, or, or it doesn't exist? You know, what are you trying to achieve by your riches? Are you trying to achieve security? Wealth will not bring security, right? So he's saying you don't overwork. So as much as we were saying, like, you have to work and not be lazy, but there is a limit. There is such a thing as overworking. There's such a thing as working for the wrong reasons. Am I working because I really am trying to make a, a good living for myself, for my family, and so on? Or am I working because I want to be wealthy, right? And the desire for wealth is one of the most dangerous things that the Bible speaks about for us, right? It is a snare, is what it says. It's the desire to be rich is a snare. It's a trap. You know, it seems like it's good. It seems like it will make us happy, and it seems attainable. And maybe we try to make certain choices in order to attain that wealth. But it's elusive, and it's a trap, and it will consume us. And, and the people who go down that road, um, they're never satisfied. You know, they're never satisfied with where they are because you're always comparing yourself with somebody. And when you exceed kind of this level of wealth and you go up to the next tier, then you start comparing yourself with somebody else. And that person also maybe has more than you. So you work to get up to the next tier and then there's somebody else there. There's always somebody else, right? So we shouldn't, we shouldn't con be consumed in our life and have this um, desire to be rich. So we can ask ourselves, how many sacrifices do we make for the pursuit of money? You know, what do we give up for money? Is it the most important thing in our lives? Are we, are we never satisfied with our current financial situation? You know, like even when it comes to the stock market, how do we use the stock market? Do we use the stock market as an investment for us to grow our wealth over a long period of time, maybe preparing for retirement? Or do we use it as a kind of gambling where every day we are trying to beat it? Every day we are trying to win. Every time we're trying to make money very quickly. And then we ask also ourselves is do we overwork ourselves beyond our ability? Not because of necessity, but simply because of a desire to have more, to attain more. His Holiness Pope Shnoda, he said this. He says, so we should give the body physical rest. For it is not a sin, but rather a divine commandment. A person should be wise so as not to exhaust his body beyond its power, nor give it more rest than it needs, which leads to laziness or sluggishness. So there's the balance we're talking about. I remember a professor of medicine in London who said to me, I cannot prevent you from hard work, for your responsibility requires that, but I prevent you from overwork. 
By overwork, he meant work that is done after a person becomes exhausted and ought to have stopped. He said to me also, the work you do happily and joyfully will not injure your heart, whereas the work you do when feeling annoyed and troubled will exhaust you physically. Feeling delighted in work makes one not feel tired. So definitely enjoying what we do and setting limits to how much work we do while still not being on the opposite spectrum of being lazy, this balance is the perfect balance. Okay. The third point is avoiding debt. Somebody once said, the only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they have never been offered an elephant for no money down and easy monthly payments. And it's true. Like if there was actually somebody who had a company where they would like sell you elephants that you would keep in your house or in your backyard and they made it affordable, there would definitely be people who do it. Like there would definitely be people who, 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 who want to own an elephant just because it's offered to them, right? Even though there's no, like it's, it's ridiculous, right? And people do these things, why? Simply because it's offered to them without them having to pay the full amount and they go into debt for it. You know, like one of the big, biggest issues that we have in our country is debt, credit card debts, debt, whatever kind of debt, right? And people work their, you know, entire lives, live their entire lives struggling with debt. They're, they're trying to pay back something that they couldn't afford from the beginning. Now, I know some things are necessary. Like, for instance, people might go into debt because they go to college, which is a great investment in order to go to college because that allows them to have uh, a better education, better career, and, and, and be able to pay back, hopefully, that debt. But there's a lot of debt that people do for things that are frivolous, you know, for something that they don't need, for something they cannot afford, but because it's offered to them in an enticing way, and they are told, oh, well, I'm just going to give you the money that you need in order to buy this, and you just pay me back later, right? Without thinking of the risk involved in that without thinking about all the interest that people are going to be paying whenever you are going to pay back somebody who has lent you a lot of money you obviously you're going to be paying back a lot more money than um, than they gave you in proverbs 22 it says the rich rules over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender right the borrower is servant to the lender you are beholden to the lender because the lender has something over you right you, you owe him money, and so you are like under his, you know, under his authority in a sense because he can put you to jail, for instance. Like if you can't pay, like he can sue you. If you can't pay, he can forcibly take from you, right? It is, it is risky to be in debt. We shouldn't take this lightly, but we should be wise in what kind of debts we are willing to put ourselves in. Also says, do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Right? Like if, if, if you don't, if you know that that is something you cannot afford, but you are willing to go into debt for it, then he can come and take away your bed. Like he can come and take what you have in order to, to, to pay for this debt that you owe him. Right? So, Avoiding debt is a very important um, uh, lesson that we read about in the book of Proverbs. What do we learn? Borrower is at the mercy of the lender. Debt has become a free ticket to everything our heart desires. And this is true. 
you know like there really isn't anything that anyone cannot get right away no matter how much money you make you'll probably find a way you can get whatever it is that you want by going to some kind of debt even if it's very high risk debt um, get it now and pay later so if people have that mentality where I'm just going to get it now and pay later. I'm not really thinking about my financial responsibility. I'm just thinking about what I want, right? Instead of learning to defer that desire to wait and to save money in order for I can actually uh, uh, get it, right? That's going to be a big problem. This uh, little cartoon might be hard to see, but it, it has like this this family sitting on top of this couch that is propped up by all of this debt and credit and all of this. And it says U.S. lifestyle. And then the, the rug at the very bottom of the room is like a big dollar bill. Okay. And then this man comes in, the repo man. He says, I'm here for the rug. Right. So he's going to take the rug on which everything is built. Right. All of the lifestyle is built on this debt. Right. And, and you know, it's, uh, it, it's a big problem. It's even a problem in the government. You know, the government itself is in very big debt. The fourth principle to learn about money from the book of Proverbs is honesty. It says, a money magazine survey found that Americans are becoming less honest. 24% of respondents said they wouldn't correct a waiter who undercharged them. In a similar poll conducted in 1987, only 15% of respondents said they wouldn't correct the waiter. What would you do if you found a wallet containing $1,000? 24% of this year's respondents said they'd keep the cash compared with 4% a decade ago. People ages 18 to 34 were 10 times more likely to keep the money than people 65 and older. I remember it was like maybe two weeks ago where there was something happened where there was like, I don't remember if it was an armored truck that was carrying cash and there was some accident or something and the money just flew out on the streets and all the people were running to grab as much cash as they could, you know, and, and just keep it, right? People feel that whatever that you can get away with is okay. Like, if I can get away with getting that money, it's a victimless crime. Who's getting hurt? Nobody. These banks and these people are already rich. If I just take this money, what's the big deal? You know, I deserve this money because I work hard every day and I have family to feed and I haven't done any, and I pay my taxes and I do this and this. So that means because of all this, and I feel victimized by the system, it means that if I have an opportunity to cheat and without ever getting caught, I will do so. Like how many people will cheat on their taxes if they know that they will never get caught, right? So one of the big principles that we read about um, in the book of Proverbs has to do with being honest with the money that we have. Nearly one third of the respondents said they cheat on their income taxes. The rich seemed especially fond of tax fraud. 45% of Americans with annual incomes exceeding 50000 said they wouldn't report $2,000 in cash income on their tax returns compared with 24% of those earning less than 15000 So there's also a disparity in, t in, the in terms of what the rich are actually more likely to cheat than the poor, which is interesting, right? One thing that happens when someone is wealthy is they become very attached to that wealth. Right, you become very attached to it. And when you become attached to it, you want to find more ways to keep it and more ways to increase it. Okay? A quarter of the respondents said they'd commit a crime for $10 million if they knew they wouldn't get caught. 
Men, 31% were twice as more likely to do so than women. Okay? So 25% of people said that if they could commit a crime and not get caught and steal $10 million, they would do it. Twi one in four people would do that. Um, I remember when I was in high school, we had this debate uh, with, uh, with our friend group. And, uh, yeah, it had to do with this exact point. Like, would you, if you could get away with stealing millions of dollars and, and nobody found out, would you do it or not? And many of them said they would, right? Again, it's, it seems like, it feels like a victimless crime. You don't see your the victims of it. You're not, like, actually going to a person who owns something and stealing it from their hand. It's just cash. It's just money, you know? It belongs to big institutions. They already have a lot of money. What's the problem, right? Um, in Proverbs 13, it says, Wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. So the person who believes that through dishonest means they will gain wealth, God says it will be diminished, meaning it will not last. And will not last doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to correct itself in the sense that, okay, if they gain the money one year, then something's going to happen, and next year they're going to lose all the money. Because actually we know of people who have been dishonest, and maybe we don't even find out about it until after they're gone. You know, there are people who definitely uh, in this world will benefit from dishonesty. Definitely. There's no question about that. And that's maybe what makes dishonesty attractive. Because when you see people who get away with it, when you see people who benefit from dishonesty, then maybe for those who are honest, you know, they're like, well, you know, all these other people are doing it and they're benefiting from it and they're getting away with it. So why shouldn't I do it as well? Okay. But the idea of being diminished is we lose the blessing of God. We, we, lose, we lose the blessing that God gives us, which is greater than wealth, which is the idea of God's sustaining power in our lives, the, 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 the peace that God gives. The, like God blesses those people who are honest in whichever way that comes, whether that comes through increasing their wealth or whether that comes through other means, right? But he says what? He who gathers by labor will increase. Like if you want to increase your wealth, if you want to increase yourself, work diligently. Don't look for the free ride. Don't look for the instant success. You know, one of the dangerous things about the lottery, for instance, when we say do not play the lottery and do not gamble, it is the desire for the free ride. It's the desire for instant success. Right? Instant success can be dangerous. Instant success, we might think that, we are, even if it's legal, right, even if it's legal, instant success might, might feel like the, 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 the best possible result, the best, the best thing that can happen to me. You know, I win the lottery and I win millions of dollars and my life is great. But actually, if you look actually in the lives of real people that won the lottery, their lives actually become miserable. You know, they lose relationships with their friends and family. Some people even commit suicide. Some people like run out of the money completely because it came too quickly and they don't know how to manage it. So they actually go bankrupt. Like, People can't handle that. But when you work um, consistently to make uh, a, a, a living for yourself and to accumulate wealth over a long period of time, you respect it because you know what went into it. You know how much you had to work to attain it. And so you don't treat it as this light thing. You, you weigh it. You, you think about everything that you had to do to achieve it, and it's actually more valuable in your sight than if somebody just gives you money for free. 
Okay, wealth gained by dishonesty will be diminished, but he who gathers by labor will increase. Even as Christians, we are tempted to do things that are immoral for the sake of gaining or saving money, like I mentioned, like cheating on our taxes or so on. Cheating the system is seen as being clever, not lying or stealing. Right? This can be a big problem. Do we see that as cheating the system, getting away from uh, away with things, is just being clever? Right? We feel like we've accomplished something when we do that. Or do we look at it as what it is? It is stealing. It is stealing from someone. It doesn't matter whether you're stealing from a big institution or whether you're stealing from an individual. It doesn't matter whether you know the name of the individual or you don't know the name of the individual. It still doesn't belong to us. How honest are we with our money even when no one will ever find out? It's a question we can ask ourselves, right? If, if no one finds out, am I willing to cheat? Am I willing to avoid, uh, like let's say there is an error in my favor, Right? Or am I willing to just let that go, not mention it because, well, I didn't do anything to get it. I didn't cheat anyone, so I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. And, you know, if I got money somehow that I shouldn't have gotten, I'm not going to say anything. God promises that hard work will pay off, but a dishonest man's wealth will decrease. Right? They are not going to benefit from that wealth. The fifth principle is about having wisdom in the way that we spend our money says the trouble is that too many people are spending money they haven't yet earned for things they don't need to impress people they don't like right as a, as a kind of a, a principle of how many people kind of <laughs> spend their money with with a lack of wisdom right they're spending money they haven't earned so they go to debt they buy things they don't need just because they have been told that it's good to have or they see other people have and they do it because they want to impress people that they don't even care about just because they want to show that they are at a certain uh, status level of wealth, of possessions, of so on, you know. I think uh, in my neighborhood, uh, there's like this competition with Christmas lights. Because I've never seen so many people put up Christmas lights, and they're all like trying to one-up one another. Literally, there are some streets you go down, it's glaringly bright because of all the Christmas lights that are there. Um and it, it, you could tell, like one person puts it up and the neighbor has to put it up. And then the, their neighbor puts it up. And everyone tries to be better than the other one, okay? So the idea is, and they don't even know who, the, who they are. They're just, you know, they, they, they don't know each other. Um, in Proverbs 28, it says, He who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity will have poverty enough. Like, again, the one who is spending his money and working to do the right thing, to spend it on the things that are necessary and important, right, will have plenty, right? They will they will be sustained. But he who follows frivolity will have poverty, meaning the person who doesn't um, correctly measure what it is that they can afford and they spend a disproportionate amount of their wealth on things that are not necessary, right, then they will have poverty, right? And, and I think a lot of the situations that we see are people who, purchase things that they couldn't afford and they were things that they didn't need right we we are in such a consumeristic society buying all kinds of things that we don't really need um simply because famous celebrities uh, have told us that they use those things and that makes us evidently want to use them too you know so how are we spending our money how much money do we spend on things that are essential you know, versus things that are not essential. Are we going into debt because of the things that are not essential? Why? Like St. Paul says, like with food and clothing, these will be content. 
Like, how far away are we from that statement? With food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Just food and clothing, that's all I need. Like, like someone who only had food and clothing would consider themselves to be, like, extremely poor, right? Because I don't have anything but food and clothing. Like, you didn't even talk about shelter. You didn't talk about, like, having different types of clothing, you know? Whereas now, it's like we have to have a million types of everything. Not me, but other people. Because I only have one kind of clothing. Um, how much is spent on luxuries we don't need? How much is spent simply because of peer pressure or to maintain our image in front of others? Right? What is the motivation behind buying something? Do we buy something just because it's expected? That if we don't buy it, then what are other people going to say about us? Am I tempted to do something just because of you know, uh, maintain a certain image? Do I feel ashamed if the car I buy is not as fancy as my neighbor's or my salary is less than my neighbor's? Like, how do I compare myself to other people? Do I do it, does that come into in my thinking as to why I spend money on something, right? All those things are very important mentioned in the book of Proverbs. The sixth principle about finances and money we learn in the book of Proverbs has to do with giving to the poor. W.A. Criswell tells of an ambitious young man who told his pastor he'd promised God a tithe of his income. They prayed for God to bless his career. At that time, he was making $40 per week and tithing $4. In a few years, his income increased and he was tithing $500 per week. He called on the pastor to see if he could be released from his tithing promise. It was too costly now. The pastor replied, I don't see how you can be released from your promise, but we can ask God to reduce your income to $40 a week, then you'd have no problem tithing $4. The idea that even people, when they become wealthy, again, because of this easy attachment, to be easily attached to wealth and to money, makes it difficult to give, right? Even though you, you have so much more, but instead of thinking about, look how much I have, we're focusing on how much we have to give away, right? How much I have to give to others, it's like painful. Like I'm giving something that belongs to me. And the more that I give, the more it's painful. But here in this example, the, the reason he's giving more is because he was making so much more. But we get accustomed to a certain level, and it makes it hard to give. And I always tell people, do not consider that the tithe you make or the tithe, like the tithe of your income is actually belongs to you. It doesn't belong to you as though it never even came to you. You know, as though this is something that is immediately deducted from your income to be given to God never was yours. It, you know, it don't even feel like you're giving. It's, it's, it wasn't yours. It's God's and you're just giving it to him. In Proverbs 11, there is one who scatters yet increases more. And there is one who withholds more than is right but it leads to poverty. The generous soul will be made rich, and he who waters will also be watered himself. Right? The one who scatters is the one who is generous. Right? He is the one who takes of his wealth, and he doesn't hoard it or keep it to himself, but he just distributes it, and he gives it to whoever has need. This one increases. Like God will increase this person because they are trusting in God, and they are showing love to their neighbor. And there is one who withholds, right? who doesn't want to share, who doesn't want to give, thinking that they are actually going to increase because they are keeping this money, but it leads to poverty because God does not bless them. The generous soul is the one who will be made rich, but he who and he who waters will himself be watered. The one who gives will also be given. Honor the Lord with your possessions 
and with the first fruits of all your increase, so your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. It's like counterintuitive, right? Give in order to receive. And whatever it is that you give, God is going to make you to receive more than you have given. Okay? And again, this isn't to be taken literally in the sense that if I give, then God, you know, if I give X dollars, then God is going to bring me 2X. Like, it's not like God is, 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 is doing math. Okay? In some cases, and in many cases, God does bless financially. But even if the blessing is not financial, the blessing comes in a different way. You know, the blessings that come that are not financial are often greater than the financial gifts. You know, the blessing of having peace with your, you know, family. The blessing of not falling into all kinds of troubles that people fall into in their life. The, the, the you know, the blessing of being protected. The blessing of good health. All kinds of things that can be good blessings for us that God gives above and beyond just simply wealth. But here, this is what it's saying. If you give the first fruits, like if you give the best of what you have, like don't give grudgingly, don't give the last, don't give like the minimum, but you give God the first, right? And then you will be blessed. Also in chapter 28, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. He who hides his eyes, meaning the one who doesn't want to see the poor, who pretends that there is no poor, who doesn't see the needs of the people around him and doesn't feel responsible for helping them. You know, like the person who sees somebody in need and just says, oh, well, somebody else is going to deal with that. Like, I don't have to feel responsible. Okay, the church is in need of donations. Well, somebody else will donate. It's not my responsibility. Other people have more wealth than I do, more money. So they can be the ones to support all the services. And so I myself don't have to, right? This is someone who hides his eyes. But the consequence is he will have many curses. The righteous considers the cause of the poor, but the wicked does not understand such knowledge, right? The person who is righteous understands the suffering of the poor, understands that the poor are have a difficult life, and they want to serve them by helping them with this. But the wicked is just very self-focused, very like self-conceited like person. Like someone only cares about their own life, their own things, no matter how frivolous they, they may be, completely neglecting that there are people who are around them that are suffering, and they don't want to give, they don't want to share with them. He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay back what he has given. It's a very beautiful verse. He who has who gives to the poor is lending to God Himself, right? The the one like when we give to the poor, it's like we are giving directly to God, and God will restore and pay us back whatever we have given. Whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard, right? Like if we want God to hear our pleas, if we want God to answer our prayers, if we want God to protect us and help us in our in our problems in our life then we also see how we can serve others and help them, whether financially or in whatever way that they need, and then God will also provide the same for us. So what are some lessons that we learn? We are tempted to think that the more we give, the less we will have. And this is false. We can try to preserve our wealth by hoarding it, but God said the opposite, that those who scatter are the ones who will receive. Um, indicates a misunderstanding of the source of our prosperity. What is the source of our prosperity? It is not our wealth. It is not our cleverness. It is the blessing of God upon us, right? And when we trust in the blessings of God, then we will be prosperous. God blesses us with wealth. It is not something that we can create for ourselves or take the credit for, 
right? Of course, th we have a role in this because like we said at the beginning, we shouldn't be lazy, we should work hard and so on. But that in itself does not guarantee success. It is the blessing of God along with that that will bring us success. We are called to always be mindful and consider the poor. It is easy to forget about their plight, especially if we are surrounded by riches all the time. Like if we are always like people who live at a certain uh, like standard of living, forget maybe that there are other people around that are not living at that standard, right? That don't have all the benefits that they have. Maybe they've never even seen, right? That's why it's good to, you know, like see the people who are poor. Like how is it that they are living? Like going to a place where there are people who are truly poor and you see the way that they live, like this is reality. Like this isn't just something that you see in the movies. Like people are really suffering, right? To see them and to be reminded of how much that we can do to help them. In Matthew 25, it says, Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So he's saying, if you do not serve the poor, then you are not serving me, as God speaking. right? If we do not serve the poor, then we are not serving God. We treat them as God himself. That whatever we lend to them, it is like we are lending to God. The seventh point has to do with that righteousness is more important than wealth. It says, The early morning crash of a Brinks armored truck on a Miami highway in January held up a mirror to our nation's cultural decline. While the driver and a fellow Brinks officer lay bruised and bleeding, a festive atmosphere broke loose around the truck as thousands of dollars blew in the breeze. Motorists stopped in rush hour traffic then scooped up cash before resuming their commutes to the office. Thousands of crisp bills and shiny coins rained down on an overpass onto Miami neighborhood. Below, mothers with babies grabbed coins and piled them into their strollers. An elderly woman filled a box. A young schoolgirl dumped her book bag and loaded it with coins and bills. Onlookers and participants had plenty of justifications and rationalizations. Which is more moral? asked one resident of the impoverished neighborhood to return the money and leave your children impoverished or maybe send them to college and enrich the family for generations, right? Like, like, like we were saying before, like a justification. Which is, which is more moral, that we continue to live in poverty um, or that we take this money, even though it doesn't belong to us, and we can have a decent life for ourselves, right? So the scripture makes it very clear that it is better to be completely poor and have nothing but maintaining your integrity and your righteousness rather than to have money and to lose that integrity. It says, he who trusts in riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. It is the righteous because the righteous is the one who sees that God is the answer. God is the answer to poverty. God is the answer to, to peace. God is the answer. So if, if I'm seeking that, then I will, I will trust in God, I will obey him, and I, I believe that God will cause me to flourish. The righteous will flourish. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. What is the day of wrath? The judgment. Righteousness do not profit. What am I going to profit on the day of wrath? What am I going to profit on the day of judgment? No matter how much money I have. Right? That's not going to profit me. But in that day, the currency that matters is the currency of righteousness. Right? 
that God will judge based on my righteousness. He will not judge based on how much money I have in the bank. So if I gave up my righteousness in order to gain wealth through dishonesty, right, then what benefit is that to me? The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it, right? Those who seek riches through dishonesty go through a lot of stress, a lot of pain, a lot of trouble, a lot of fear, running from trying to hide, uh, you know, the their what it is that they've done to gain money, and you know, like like people who try to gain money through dishonest means, it's like they're always on the run, they're always trying to not get caught. They're always trying to to cover their steps, right? And and so it brings sorrow. That brings sorrow. Like it brings a life of sorrow. So yes, you have money, but it doesn't come for free. There is something else that comes with it. But the blessing of the Lord is what makes one rich, right? Those who have the blessing of the ro- Lord, they are the ones who are rich. They live their life in joy and peace. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud, right? So if, if, if we are humble and living in obedience to God with the presence of God, but we are lowly, like we are not wealthy, this is better than to be among the wealthy, right? But they are, they are proud and, and against God and living in an unrighteous way. There is one who makes himself rich yet has nothing, and one who makes himself poor yet has great riches. You know, if you, there are some people who are poor, and yet they have such joy and peace in their lives, far greater and less anxiety and less uh, kind of mental illness than people who are rich and are filled their lives with stress, right? Saying, what is better? It is it better to have wealth but to live life in complete stress and antagonism and fear and all these things? Or is it better to just, I have very little, but I'm just joyful. I'm just trusting God day by day and I'm not feeling like I'm in need of anything. What are some lessons that we learn? Money has become the ultimate goal for many people. And many place more value on the power of money than on the power of God. And money doesn't have buy happiness, right? This man, John Rockefeller, he's one of the richest people that ever lived. And I, I think they say about him that if you were to like scale his wealth up to the present day, then he would maybe be the richest person who ever lived. He said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness, right? I, I, they have brought me no happiness. Um, he, he him saying about this himself, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. And again, th- this is like many, many years ago. So this wealth is actually much higher than 200 million um, by today's standard. Um, but he's saying there's no pleasure in it. Like these people who are wealthy, they're saying, I, don't, I didn't get joy from the wealth. John uh, Jacob Astor, he said, I am the most miserable man on earth. Henry Ford the one who started the Ford Motor Company. He said, I was happier when doing a mechanic's job. And Andrew Carnegie, he said, millionaires seldom smile. Right? Like, like these people who experienced it tell us their experience. King Solomon, right? The book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us his experience. He became very wealthy, right? And there was no joy in that wealth, right? So we who have yet to attain maybe this should take the cues and the wisdom from those who have and learn from them and realize this should not be my goal. Like if this is my goal and thinking that this is what's going to make me happy, this is wrong. I'm not going to be happy when I attain this kind of wealth. What was going to make me happy is living a life with God. What will make me happy is putting my trust in God. What will make me happy is giving to the poor. What will make me happy is being content 
and being thankful for the things that God has given. This is what brings happiness, not having wealth. The eighth principle we learn about wealth from the book of Proverbs is contentment. So it says, leaning on his fence one day, a devout Quaker was watching a new neighbor move in the next door. After all kinds of modern appliances, electronic gadgets, plush furniture, and costly wall hangings had been carried in, the onlooker called over. If you find you're lacking anything, neighbor, let me know, and I'll show you how to live without it. Because the Quakers are known for being like very frugal, like not living with like luxury. The idea of contentment is also very important, because if I don't have contentment, no matter how much money I have, no matter, matter how much luxuries I have, no matter how much possessions I have, I will never feel happy with it, right? Because I am not content with where I am. And contentment starts with today. Like contentment doesn't say, well, once I achieve something, then I will be content. That defeats the purpose of contentment. Contentment means I'm going to be content immediately, right now. This very moment, with whatever I have, I will learn to be content. And if I can do that, then I will learn to be content at whatever stage of life that I'm in, no matter where I am. But if I'm waiting for something to happen in order for me to be content, then I will never be content. Right? Contentment has to do with being content in the moment. In Proverbs chapter 30, it says, Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Here, what King Solomon is saying is that there is a middle ground. He's saying, I do not want to have poverty. Like, I don't want to be in need. But I also don't want to be wealthy. Right? Because there's two dangers. There's a danger of being poor, and there's a danger of being rich. Okay? So he says, if um, I am rich lest I be full and deny you, meaning if I am rich and I have all of my needs, then I will feel like I am not in need of God. Why, why do I, I have no need of him? I am completely satisfied with the wealth that I have, and so I, 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 I reject even the idea of God. Okay? Or, lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If I am too poor and I don't have the, the necessities of my life, then maybe I will be tempted to steal. And again, this goes back to the idea of righteousness, right? I'm being dishonest in the way that I am dealing with my life, with my, my, with my wealth. So here King Solomon is saying, I want to be content at this middle. I'm not seeking poverty. I don't want that. But I also am not seeking wealth. I don't feel like I have to be wealthy. I don't have to attain more and more. I'm comfortable with where I am. And wherever God has called me to be, wherever God has allowed me to be right now at this point of my life, it is good. Right? It is good. What do we learn? We should thank God for what he has given and what he has denied us. You know, the things that God has given us, we thank him. And the things that God has said, no. We also, we also are thankful. Right? Because he denies us things for a good reason. Maybe there is something that will harm me if I have it. While we might hope for more in the future, we should be content with less. It's okay to hope for more. Like it's, it's okay to desire more. But that's not what contentment is. Contentment has to do with whether I am satisfied today. Having a hope of the future is one thing. But even if that hope is not realized, or it's not he realized as soon as I would like, how do I feel about the present? Am I trying to simply escape it? Do I hate it? 
Am I unsatisfied and unhappy with it? Or am I thankful to God for it while at the same time I'm praying and asking God, if you want to increase me, please increase me. I would like to increase. He speaks about the food allotted to me. This is my portion, right? I should not be upset if my portion is smaller than someone else's. Meaning you could work hard your entire life and you could ask God and you could be a saint and and serve people and do everything right. That doesn't mean you're going to be a billionaire, right? Maybe that's not what's been allotted to you. Maybe God is not allowing that to you because that's harmful for you. This goes completely against kind of the spirit of the world. The spirit of the world makes it sound like the, you just work hard and do whatever it takes and you can be whatever, you know, have whatever, become billionaire, whatever. Okay? I'm not saying it's not possible. All I'm saying is why is that definitely good? Why is it good? Is it good? You know, what will happen to me if I attain that level of wealth? I don't know. Like me personally, I tell you, if I had, t- had that level of wealth, I don't know what happened to me. Like, I don't want to know what will happen to me. If God does not allow it to me, then it is not good for me, right? We should, again, um, acknowledge that not everything is beneficial, right? It can be harmful because maybe I will be attached to this money and I will deny God as a result of it. Yes. So what if you're at a state of contentment, but then you find that it's being taken away from you? How Are we supposed to just adapt and say this is the new contentment I should be? Yeah, so, again, there's nothing wrong with um, doing all that is in my power to increase myself. And that would include not allowing myself to lose something that I have, right? And it's definitely okay not to want to lose something that I have. But the idea of contentment is to accept the reality, you know? Like, let's say I had a job where I was making a certain amount of money, and I was laid off from this job, and the only other job I could find made less money. So I feel like my income decreased. It's not something that's pleasant. Like, it's not something I like. But if that is all the options that are available to me, then I say, okay, maybe this is God's will for me. Why? I don't know. But maybe this is God's will for me. And yes, I have to learn to be content with that. Again, it doesn't mean that I, you know, don't try to find a better job. All it means is that in the moment, this is what God has allowed, and so I'm thanking God for it instead of becoming angry about it, right? Contentment doesn't mean that everything I'm experiencing is to my liking. It doesn't mean that everything I have is exactly where I want to be, but it means that I'm thankful to God in the moment for what I have, and I always acknowledge that things could be even worse, you know? Sometimes God allows us to lose something that we have in order to appreciate what we had that we didn't appreciate you know so it teaches us a lesson about how to appreciate again how to be content you know maybe all that time that i had that job at that level all i was thinking about is i want to go even higher and i wasn't appreciating or content with where i am so when we lose even where we are we realize you know what where i was is actually better than where i am now and what can i learn right from this so yes at all times we should be content even if we're going down we should be content um, with what God gives. Was there another question? Okay. The dangers of riches of richness is to be full of oneself and forget that these blessings came from God. The more that we feel that we have all of the resources that we need and that we are not in need of anything, 
the easier it is to deny God. Right? The the we acknowledge our need for God when we see our need. Like when I have a need, that n- makes me turn to God. Sadly, when every single one of my needs in the world is met, then oftentimes I I forget about God. I don't I don't feel like like imagine times where you had a very serious problem in your life and you prayed about it and you prayed about it in tears and you prayed about it with like anguish and like a fervent spirit and maybe prayer like you've never prayed ever before based on some real serious problem that you have that you feel completely unequipped to deal with and you're just turning to God because you don't have any other outlet. You have nothing, right? Compare that to your prayer life maybe when everything's perfect and there's nothing like that. Right? That maybe it's like mm, I didn't have time to pray today, you know. Like like when we are in need, we turn to God. Okay? And so one of the reasons why riches can be dangerous is because we are deluded to think we don't need God. Like it's not that we don't actually need him. Right? Because we're thinking in terms of the world. We're just thinking in terms of what are my physical needs? And if my physical needs are met, then maybe I feel like everything's fine. But that says nothing about my spiritual needs, right? Our spiritual needs, God is the only one who can um, who, who, who can fulfill those. The dangers of poverty are to feel that God has abandoned us and take matters into our own hands. And this is actually what, um, again, back to that verse in, uh, here in Proverbs 30, where he says what the temptation then on the person who is poor is to say, God has rejected me, and so I must because I have no other option to go and to steal and to and to, to, to make for myself. So again, that is the danger, what King Solomon is saying about being um, very poor. Yes. Yeah. How do you, like, if, like, I feel like just because I have, like, I've been raised in Egypt, I feel like I see the difference between, like, like, kind of, like, how, like, the, the average kind of family lives in there and how, it, like, it isn't here. And so they're like, there's a lot more inconveniences, like a lot less things are like that we see here as like normal are there, like there it's luxury. So I can see like what you t- talked about in number four, like the point before this one. Um, but like if God has allowed you to come to like a society or to be born in a society where things are much easier, how do you make sure that you don't indulge and how do you make sure that you don't like the riches that God has naturally given you or what could be p- what you could potentially reach like say I'm a doctor and I like I can make like a good like amount of money per year so I'm not gonna be poor and I might be kind of like really rich but like how do I like not indulge well it's very hard right um, people who are born in a society and live a certain way that becomes a normal for them and so in order for them to voluntarily accept something that is much lower even though maybe the majority of the rest of the world, for them, that lower thing is the normal. But because we haven't grown up in it and lived it and experienced it, for people who, who are used to being at a higher level, it is difficult. Like I even remember, I think it's the story of St. Arsenius where you know, he used to live in the palace before he became a monk. And he was a teacher of like the princes and the people in the palace. So he always lived in a very like luxurious status because he was living there in the palace and always being with the kings and so on. And then when he chose to leave that all behind and he went to the monastery, right? 
when he was there, some of the other monks were complaining against him and saying, how come is he sleeping on a bed? All the other monks were sleeping on the ground. And somebody said, well, you know, for him, coming from such like a luxurious place, for him sleeping on such a simple bed and a simple thing like he's doing now is actually a huge, you know, it's, it's, it's like a huge step down for him. Like he's saying essentially don't, don't complain about him or criticize him because what he gave up is so much. Maybe compared to um, a lot of the other people who were monks there who grew up in poverty and for them sleeping on the floor is like maybe normal. Maybe they have always slept on the floor, right? So I, I use that as just an example to say that those of us, which is most of us here, I think, that grew up in America, um, don't always understand like how in other places like really what they what they live like how they live and for us like like I'm, i remember whenever i would go visit egypt like they didn't have air conditioning like they had these window units in some rooms but it wasn't like central air conditioning and it's like super hot and i'm there in the summertime and everybody there is like mm. like they're just they're living their lives and i'm just dying right so for me it's like w air conditioning is a necessity but for them, air conditioning is a luxury. Not everybody has one. And when you turn it on, you only turn it on in some parts of the day. And you only turn it on in one room, you know. After a while, they ended up getting them in every room just for me. Uh, so uh, it's hard when you get used to something to, to, to live without it. And I think that's part of this danger. That's part of the danger of being wealthy. Like as a nation, we are very wealthy. And so we come to rely on that wealth and we don't know how to live without it we don't know how to live without the conveniences that we have so i think the best thing and and, and i and i think definitely god understands like god he out of his mercy he sees what everyone is capable of we're not all capable of the same things but i think it's very important for us to see the way that other people live and which will help us be even more thankful for how we live. You know, there was this, like, there was this uh, movie, um, it's complete, like, science fiction movie, but in this movie, there's these people who made, like, this very realistic virtual reality system. And what they were selling was uh, a an experience for wealthy people who were very, like, not enjoying their lives, not happy with what they had, not feeling that they, you know, not, not, not appreciating their own lives, feeling kind of depressed, but they were wealthy, for experiencing what it's like to be a poor person. And so they sold this as kind of like a therapy, okay, where you go into this thing and you experience the life of living on the street as a homeless person, okay, and getting treated like a homeless person would be treated and not being able to eat or to live where you are, like, and, and it's supposed to be, at least in this movie, that after having experienced this, then when you go back to your regular life, you're much happier because you identify, you realize that what your actual life is, is so much better than you imagined. So we get used to what we have to the point where we're not thankful for it anymore. So I think um, especially the more wealthy that you are, the more important it is to give to the poor the more important it is to see the way that the poor are living, the more important it is to be thankful for what we have and to be humble about what we have because definitely um, those people who grew up without 
are much more resilient in the way that they can live because they don't have to have all the things that maybe we feel that we have to have in order to have a good day, in order to feel like we are happy and content. So it's definitely a struggle, and, and that's one of the things actually which leads us to this. What is the benefits of poverty? Okay, which is the last point. In Proverbs 18, it says, The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. The poor man maybe is more polite. The poor man maybe is not entitled, you know. Maybe I don't feel as entitled. Maybe for me as a poor person, when somebody gives me something, I am thankful for that thing that I've received. But the, the rich person is not. The rich person is feels entitled to everything. So maybe they are not kind. They are not considerate. They answer roughly, right? Whereas the poor person uses entreaties, meaning they're making an entreat like a request. Like when they make a request, they are, they are asking for something, you know, out of humility, hoping to receive for themselves because they are always living in need. And because they are living in need, they are thankful for anything that anyone can give them. And they're thankful for that as opposed to someone who is rich what is their relationship with other people? Maybe they don't feel like they care about other people. Maybe they see that other people for them are just a nuisance, an annoyance, you know, beneath them, right? Whereas a person who is poor is always mindful that they are kind of like at the bottom of the social ladder. And for them, like everything that they, everything they need has to be provided for by someone else. The poor know that they are in urgent need. The poor know that not, that not only their dependence on God and on the powerful people, but also their interdependence with one another, right? Poor people need each other. People who are, who, are, who are struggling need other people's support, and they know how to give support whenever that support is needed, whereas people who are wealthy tend to be feeling that their resources are sufficient in order to take care of whatever that they need without necessarily needing someone else. The poor have no exaggerated sense of their own importance or a sense of entitlement. They don't feel important, right? Whereas maybe a rich person, they feel like they're the most important person in the room. Whereas a, a poor person doesn't feel that. You know, a poor person is happy to get noticed at all. A poor, the poor expect little from competition and much from cooperation, right? They want to help each other. They, they, they want to cooperate with one another, not compete with one another. The poor can distinguish between necessities and luxuries, right? They know exactly what they have to have, and they don't have an overinflated sense of what they have to have. They know actually what is necessary, what is needed, and what is unnecessary. The poor can wait because they have acquired patience born of acknowledged dependence, right? They have a much, uh, they are able to wait for something good to happen, whereas the rich person, because they are used to being able to satisfy their desires immediately, require always instant gratification, right? Because if I'm used to having resources to where the moment my imagination conceives of something that I want, I get it right away, I've trained myself never to be able to wait for anything. I have to have it immediately right away. Whereas a poor person maybe rarely is able to get what it is that they want. And when they get it, they have to wait a long time to get it. So they learn how to wait, right? They learn how to, how to defer that gratification. The fears of the poor are more realistic and less exaggerated because they already know that one can survive great suffering. You know, again, maybe for me, I think the greatest suffering is to not have air conditioning, right? And that causes me great distress, right? Whereas a person who is actually in need 
their their fears are not exaggerated. Like they know that a person can survive without air conditioning. They know that a person can survive with only one meal a day, right? Whereas a person who is used to eating three meals a day, when you tell them no, you can only afford one meal a day, like maybe that would be very distressing because you've never had to do that before. And you're going to think, well, what if I can't survive? Whereas a person who maybe doesn't even eat every day knows that it's possible to live while you're only you know, eating once a day or a couple times every two days. So it's, you know, it, 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 they, they, because they've experienced the lack, they know what is necessary and what is considered luxury. When the poor have the gospel preached to them, it sounds like good news and not like a threat or scolding. You know, when someone who, like, even if you look in, like, the, the, the New Testament, the people who were the, s- the ones in the most suffering, the ones who really were in need, when the Lord Christ came and he preached to them, they received it with joy. Like, they received it as this is, these are the words of salvation. Like, these are the words of redemption. This is something positive, something good that we turn to it and to be saved. Whereas the person who is rich, they see that, you know, I am not in need of what you're offering. Right, and everything that you're saying to me, it's just preaching. You're just telling me how I should live, what I should do, how I should think, and I reject what it is that you ha- that you're offering because I don't feel like I'm in any need of anything. I don't feel like what you're offering me is actually necessary for me, and so I reject the whole message. Whereas maybe the person who is poor doesn't think that. They think, yeah, this is the answer. This is what I have been looking for, and this solves all of you know my my deepest concerns. The poor can respond to the go- call of the gospel with a certain surrender because they have so little to lose and are ready to accept God's promises, right? Like, I'm ready to accept the promises of God because I have no other option. I ha- Like, God is the Savior. He is the one who saves me from the situation that I'm in. So there are actually many benefits because like, can we ask, why is it that God allows people to be poor? He could have, you know, prevented that. God allows it. There are benefits, and if we look actually throughout history, we see that a lot of people who were poor were actually the greatest saints. The, a lot of people who went through great suffering were the greatest saints, whereas a lot of people who were very wealthy, not universally, and there can be people who are wealthy and be very saintly as well, but a lot of the people who were very wealthy were the ones who rejected the message, rejected the gospel message, um, rejected the words of Christ, uh, reject the, the authority of God in their lives, because they feel like they themselves are the authority. So in conclusion, we spoke about nine principles related to wisdom with money um, that we learned from the book of Proverbs. The first one was work and don't be lazy. Second one, don't overwork. Third, avoid debt. Fourth, honesty. Uh, Five, wisdom in spending and not being frivolous. Sixth, giving to the poor. Seventh, uh, righteousness is greater than wealth. Eighth, uh, being content with what we have. And the ninth, what are some of the benefits of being poor? Any comments or questions? Yes. So I know that the secular world's view is, um, how to put it, uh, our goal shouldn't be to eradicate poverty as the rest of the world kind of wants to uh, achieve it. Of course, serving the poor, but never, it's not like it's a possibility either, but it seems that that's something that is constantly talked about. So whenever it is we can lift somebody out of poverty, that's good. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But to us as a church, that's not sufficient. 
So I'm not saying we are not for the idea of eradicating poverty. Sure. Like if we can help someone to come out of poverty, we should. But that in itself is not the goal alone. The goal is the salvation of everyone. Like the, the goal of the church is the salvation of the world. And so part of kind of reaching that goal of the salvation of the world is to meet the needs of the people who we are going to preach to and going to try to bring them to, to God, right? So I would say that um, trying to end poverty is a stepping stone toward the ultimate goal, not the goal in and of itself. I guess that's how I would say So as I was listening to you speak about <coughs> the struggle with material wealth, I, I, I found myself creating a parallel with um, rather than the acquisition of material wealth, the acquisition of knowledge. It, it seemed like everything paralleled precisely what you were saying. And it was hitting me with a ton, like a ton of bricks because um, you know, uh, for me, I'm, as you know, focusing on college now, trying to learn, and uh, you know, spending these last three years, I feel like I've found the conference of learning how to learn, just like a person seeking wealth learns how to uh, acquire wealth, and now uh, it, it's like there's this feeling, oh, I could, I want to learn this, and I want to learn that. Uh, and it, it, you know, it just, just spreading myself in and 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 going every 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 direction. It seems like um, busying myself. Um, uh, but then, as you were speaking, I I, you know, I was brought back to uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, where um, he Solomon he says. Vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, that this too would be vanity, um, and if that is so, it's like there's a moment of despair. What's the point of all of this? Uh, but then, I guess you brought back to the to the thought that ultimately the only true treasure is God. That everything we do, everything that every every purpose in life, for every action that we do, should be to move towards Him. Right? Is that's the only hope? Only only thing we can really hold on to. Is that a good conclusion, or what do you think of that? Yeah, like I mean, even King Solomon at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, he says what the conclusion of the matter is this, to obey God and keep his commandments, right? So, or to fear God and keep his commandments. Um, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with knowledge. There's nothing wrong with any worldly pursuit on the face of it, in and of itself. The problems come for what is our intention of seeking it? What do we do when we attain it? How much do we sacrifice to attain it? You know? So, for instance, if someone is seeking worldly knowledge because it is necessary for them to make a career for themselves, that's necessary. But just as we said with wealth, if somebody completely you know, consecrates their life for only attaining worldly knowledge at the sacrifice of everything else, then that's an imbalanced life, right? Also, what is the reason for me to try to seek that knowledge, right? Am I seeking that knowledge and elevating it to be higher than the knowledge of God, which is what the world does? You know, maybe even concluding 
through worldly knowledge that God doesn't even exist because we have understood so much about the world and about science and so on. Like, so there are ways of, of pursuing things in the world that are good and that are balanced and that are necessary. And there's also ways of pursuing them that are damaging and harmful and unbalanced. So w for whatever it, it is, whether wealth or knowledge or, you know, any topic you can think of, you know, um, even even we talk about things like love, you know, like the, the, the Lord said, unless you hate your 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 mother and father right you 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 know that um we can have no part in him like like we cannot be his disciples what does that even mean it means that if the love of our family becomes an obstacle for me to be a disciple of Christ then even that love is an unhealthy one right he's not saying don't love your family he's saying anything even your closest relationships, even your family members, if they are an obstacle for you from following God, then that has to be cut out, right? In some cases, for some people, that literally means I cannot have a relationship with my family. In most cases, no. But he's using that as like, a, like an example to show how much we should be willing to sacrifice for the sake of our relationship for, with God. So if anything becomes an obstacle, between me and God, you could fill in the blank. It could be entertainment, you know? Is there something wrong with entertainment? No, there's wholesome entertainment, there's nothing wrong with it. But can you do it to an extreme to where it becomes an obstacle between you and God? Yes, you know? Even the knowledge of God, right? Some people, for them, orthodoxy is accumulation of knowledge, right? And they accumulate, 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 accumulate. And for them, that's like a relationship with God. But that's not the same thing, right? In John chapter 5, verse 39, it says what? You search the scriptures, for in them you believe you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. So he's saying, you are searching the scriptures because you want to find the words of truth. And yes, these indeed are the words of truth. But once you find those words of truth, you are not willing to come to me so that you may enjoy the relationship of life that you are seeking, right? So that's an example of a person who's placed even the knowledge of God at such like an imbalanced way where all I care about is seeking the knowledge of God, but I don't take that knowledge and it doesn't translate into a life of, with God, right? Anything can become an idol. Anything can become an obstacle, which is why we have to be very careful in the way that we live so that we are not deceived because the devil will use every means of deception to deceive us into thinking that we are pursuing something good, but it actually turns out to be something that is leading us away from God. Okay. Any other comment? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day, and for allowing us to learn, O Lord, about what you have said, about wisdom, and the wisdom about our finances and wealth from the book of Proverbs. We thank you, O Lord, for all of the wisdom that you have given us in your word, that if we were to open your word and to read it, we would find, O Lord, an endless wisdom about every topic and everything that is important to us, even thousands of years, O Lord, after it was written. We thank you, O Lord, because your word is, is, is alive and that it is something that you offer to us for our benefit, 
that we would read it and understand it, meditate on it, and it would help us in our lives. We ask, O oh God, that you help us to live in a detached way, not attached to anything that this world offers, but to know, O oh Lord, that what you offer us is far greater. Give us righteousness, O oh Lord, and give us diligence, and give us a desire to please you, O oh Lord, above all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. And also with your spirit. <laughs>